The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked. Now it's time to feel good naked. No matter what your body size or life circumstances, this is Feel Good Naked Radio. And your host is Laura Redmond. On this program, Laura will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here is your host, Laura Redmond. Welcome to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond, and I'm really excited about today's show, especially because in our country, the holiday season starts next week with Thanksgiving, and that means lots of eating, lots of sitting on the couch, watching TV, being lazy, um, not me, but the rest of the country. I'm I'm committed to an active lifestyle, a healthy lifestyle, and our show is all about bringing you, the listeners, tips to live a happier life, a more embodied life, and a more mindful life. So today I'm thrilled to start our show with Dr. Lowell Barrick. Dr. Lowell Barrick comes from traditional medical training, graduating from Tulane University School of Medicine. After an internship in New York, he went to Georgetown University Hospital to complete his residency. He was appointed as clinical assistant professor at Mount Sinai School of Medicine and a senior staff position at Beth Israel Hospital in New York. After 10 years, he left for private practice. In 2013, Dr. Barrick became certified in age management medicine, and I want to know more about what that really is. So let me start by welcoming you to the show, Dr. Barrick. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Laura. It's a pleasure to have a doctor on the air, and I want to also give you the honorary first male interview I've had on my show, so that's a big deal. We'll make a little plaque (laughs) that Lowell Barrick was my first male expert. Um, But I have such respect for you, and I've always felt that your understanding of being in the body, living in the most healthy body possible, is astoundingly acute. Um, And then you bring to that a traditional medical background, which means that you've seen bodies and you know bodies differently than most of us as a doctor, and also being in diagnostics for many years, you literally saw bodies from the inside out. So why don't we start by you just explaining to the listeners what age-defying medicine is as you understand it today. Well, let me start off by saying that in 2011, I am six feet tall. I weighed 270 pounds. I was on statin drugs. I was on blood pressure medication. 
And I knew I had to do something to change my life because I wasn't very healthy, and I was in the health field. Uh, after much medical research, I sought out some physicians in New York who evaluated me in a way that was different than normal medicine. They uh, evaluated my hormone levels, and what they told me was that they wanted to restore my hormone levels to what they were when I was in my vigorous 20s or 30s, not to the normal levels for people my age. And even though I had been taught that this could be dangerous or I should avoid this type of treatment, I was really upset with the way I looked and felt and decided to give it a try. After 14 months, my 46-inch waist went down to 33 inches, and my mental state went from, I don't care about things, to being engaged in life. I realized that this was an incredible transition for me, and a lot of patients could benefit from this. Unfortunately, organized medicine and the colleagues that I trained with and how I believed before I went through this personally doesn't approve or appreciate this type of therapy. It's very controversial still, but after having gone through it and lived with the results that it gave me, I became a believer. I went back and studied and got certified, and now I treat patients in this manner, and I, and I find it very, very fulfilling. So on your website, you call it individualized bioidentical hormone replacement. Is that accurate? Yes, that's accurate. Well, we, what I do and what people in this field do, I'm obviously not the only one doing this. There are thousands of us doing it. But um, we evaluate your hormone levels, taking blood samples, and check your overall health. And what we do is try and restore your hormone levels to what they were when you were in your vigorous reproductive years. And they're great benefits for men and women. And it's, 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 it's unfortunate that it remains controversial, but I understand why it does. So are you willing to have a conversation with me today about the aging process, how we can make choices with or without hormonal sure. replacement? Listen, the, the age management physician is not only about restoring hormones, it's also about eating right and about exercising and also uh, taking the right supplements. So it's a, it's a combination of three synergistic activities. Um, exercise is considered the most powerful pill man has invented. Yeah. The changes in the body from regular exercise are, are incredible. Yeah. So that has to be part of anybody's program. And a low-carbohydrate nutrition plan that eliminates glucose spikes in the diet and thus doesn't generate insulin resistance is also a key to health and longevity. So a low-carbohydrate diet, hormonal replacement, exercise, those are the keys to having a senior age without walkers and oxygen tanks. 
Oh, and and many drugs. You know, it's funny. I'm in. I I hit my uh, mid fifties, and I was so cocky as a younger woman. I thought I'll never. I'm not going to worry about aging because I'm a dancer and I'm active and I eat well and I have great sex and I feel good and what you know. I just thought I was all set up for aging well, and I am, and I and I'm grateful for the way I'm aging, but. I think about it now differently in my mid-50s. You know, I'm, I'm at that point in life where many of us are, the booming time of, of life, but yet we also can see in the horizon the third act. You know, we, we all know... Oh, your, where, your, your body has already started to significantly reduce the available hormones that you have. And this reduction of hormones, you know, leads to loss of muscle mass, leads to osteoporosis, leads to abdominal obesity, leads to hair changes and, you know, skin changes. And a lot of that can be uh, improved with bioidentical hormone replacement. Cognitive problems, emotional problems, sleep problems, all these things that start to come. You know, it's interesting. You go to a routine physician... And they're happy to give you uh, Ambien to help you sleep, and they're happy to give you an antidepressant because you don't feel good, and they're happy to give you, uh, you know, uh, something for your uh, stomach problems, and but to give you uh, the hormone replacement that'll that'll so you wouldn't need any of that. They can't do that. They're afraid of that. They think they're going to give you cancer. They think they're going to give you a stroke or a heart attack. It's unfortunate, but um, that's the state of medicine today. The American College of Gynecology, Obstetrics and Gynecology recommends hormone replacement be at the lowest dose possible to relieve symptoms and for the shortest period of time to relieve symptoms. That's, um, you know, not what I do, not what I believe. So there's so, a big difference. I so, come from the other side. I understand where they're coming from. I know the studies that they're looking at. Unfortunately, those studies were done not with bioidentical hormones, but with synthetic hormones manufactured by the pharmaceutical companies that paid for the studies to be done. So that's, you know, that's what everybody knows. That's what everybody believes. And it's, it remains an unfortunate situation. But but let's just say that a listener out there is either economically unable to go on to a replacement, hormonal replacement um, program and or is afraid from what we have heard and what we've been told I, by the media. I, I, would, I would say the best you're going to do is to maintain a diet that is uh, low in uh, all refined uh, products and carbohydrates and to maintain uh, an exercise program. And I would add not only um, an exercise program, but people should look at interval training if they can incorporate that into their cardiovascular plan because it shortens the time of the workouts and increases the efficiency of the workouts. So that's something I would say to your listeners is to look at Google interval training and see how they can fit that into their programs. It's basically short bursts of of all-out effort during your training. Well, and I teach a program here in Portland, Oregon, that's called Stretch Appeal. And what we do in the class that is so effective is we do go from a tempo change, whether it be faster beats per minute, slower beats per minute, using gravity as a weight system, 
balancing on one leg so that we're incorporating all these different ideas within an hour. But in one hour, you feel from head to toe like you've activated your body from the inside out using resistance, using cardiovascular strength, using breath and balance. So it's a brilliant well, program. That's a, that, that's a wonderful way to get it done. And, and um, But, you know, people have to get out and do it. That's the key. Okay, so let's talk about a, a patient. A typical patient comes to you, and without disclosing any names or gender, maybe it's okay for you to say if it's men or women typically, but what would you say is the first thought that goes through your mind when you get a new patient, they don't have any sense of being embodied? Well, a lot of them, well, if they haven't come from a, a direct referral, they might, they're usually symptomatic about something. Most of them are, not all of them, but most of them are symptomatic about something. They've noticed a change. They can't sleep. Um... They, um, they're moody, they're depressed, they, they're putting on weight, um, they, they're feeling a little out of control, and, and you know, they're, they went through a period of irregular periods, now they don't have any periods, and, and things aren't quite right. And, um, you know... These, they, they come in, they've been to their doctors, their doctors maybe put them on antidepressant drugs, the doctors may put them on sleeping pills or whatever, but um, hold on. So it's a, um, it, it's a process that they, they go through and they're looking for an alternative and uh, some way they've uh, decided that uh, from maybe from one of their friends that hormone replacement therapy might be effective for them. So I evaluate them, do a physical exam, I take a detailed history, go through their medical history, their charts, make sure their mammograms are up to date, make sure their well their screening is correct, and um, and review their blood work and come up with a plan. You know, and it may involve uh, hormones, it may involve supplements, but it always will involve some uh, exercise and a uh, nutrition plan as well. Why do you think people don't exercise? What's the main deterrent? Oh, um, I don't know that they understand the uh, benefit or necessity of regular exercise. Um, I think as a general rule, um, it's a deferred gratification. It takes a level of sophistication uh, in an instant gratification world to make that leap. And um, it's, it's, you know, it's easier to think if I could buy a pill instead of working out, that would be good. You know, but that sounds like someone who's never had the endorphin experience either because when you stick with exercise, even if it's taking a long walk, you feel better. I mean, you get that dopamine. You do feel that sense of I'm I'm more upbeat. I feel less depressed. So oh, the benefit, it's so much easier to get that by eating a handful of peanut M&Ms or something, you know? No, so no. Much well, no, that's, that's a quick crash and burn. So uh, you and I have often talked about genetics, and I recently yeah. read that a human being is 80% genetically predetermined and 20% 
choice determined in terms of aging. And then I read this really cool thing that said, how well you live is 80% your choice and 20% genetics. Well, we've learned, we've learned recently that environmental factors can affect the genome through epigenetic mechanisms. So it's possible, even if you have genes that are not great, through proper lifestyle and nutrition and exercise to modify the expression of those bad genes so you still have a decent uh, outlook. Um, This is new stuff. Um, It's a lot of new stuff in medicine as it relates to gut bacteria, skin bacteria, Uh, You know, we're in this symbiotic relationship with all these organisms that live on and in us, and we're just learning now how some of that affects our health. It's a very interesting uh, field of medicine. Medicine is uh, continuing to change as new cellular therapies come into play and the use of, uh, you know, uh, all these tissue factors and purified plasma and and, and, and growth factors and, and, and cell uh, products. It's, it's, you know, these stem cell products. I, you know, medicine's undergoing another vast change. It's very interesting to be part of it. Well, I wonder in the next decades um, if there will be a language that you're sharing that is considered as prominent and common as the one that we hear when we go in and are told to take this prescription And here's a script for this, that, or the other. I mean, I recently was in Florida with my father, and I I couldn't believe the scene in the waiting room of this doctor's office. It was so depressing. It was so upsetting. And I went into the appointment with him, and I was struck by how quickly there is a like immediately there was a con- a conversation about a surgery and a pill and and all of this just feels so counterintuitive to me so can you talk about that a little bit the changing the idea of medicine changing but also why is it so proactive surgery proactive prescription is that because of the kickbacks the doctor is actually getting financially because no, it doesn't doctors don't receive kickbacks from writing prescriptions that's uh, ancient history and surgeons operate that's what they do they uh, you know even if there's no financial incentive it's what they were trained to do it's what they believe is the best thing to do um, they know the accepted indications for it and um, most surgeries, especially at quality institutions, you know, you're going to a review board, you're justifying what you're doing. There's somebody looking over your shoulder. The, those, uh, you know, I, I don't know that, um, that's a source of, uh, significant abuse in the system. Are there, are there isolated examples of abuse? I, I guess there are, I'm sure there are, but I don't think that's a systemic issue in the system. I think it's really how people were trained and what they believe is correct. And um, it's, you know, there are turf wars between specialties. There are different ideas of how things should go. And, uh, you know, yeah, there are procedures that get abused. 
when they get mispriced by Medicare. I mean, you know, there are there are there are abuses in the system, but it's not a systemic issue, really. I don't I don't uh, you know I don't think people are out there saying, oh, I got to pay my son's college tuition, so I think he need a surgery. I don't think it goes quite that superficial. I think it's more that's what they believe in. What will help you is to do what they do. It's how they were trained. But then why in a medical modality would there not be a message given to a patient that would embody the sense of taking control of your choices, getting out there and exercising, uh, uh, looking the, the at system, your diet? The system is fragmented. The system, okay, good. I, I the think system, so too. The system is also broken in terms of how it reimburses physician time. Um, the... When I trained, Medicare was just starting. And all the doctors, and I went to medical school in Louisiana or New Orleans at Tulane, and all the doctors in the city would donate one day a week free to cover the clinics in the hospital with the medical students and the house staff. And it was sort of a tradition that everybody did. And then when Medicare was introduced the hospital said, you know, these doctors, we can bill Medicare for the time they're seeing the patients in the hospital. And since they're donating their time, we can use that revenue for the hospital. And so they did. And then Medicare said, you know, you got to document that these doctors are here doing what you say they're doing and you're billing us for this stuff. And the hospital said, okay, and they asked all the doctors to sign in and to sign out and to do all this paperwork and to do all this. And the doctor said, what are you doing? You're building under my name. I'm not getting anything for it. Now you want me to do all this paperwork and do it? The whole program just stopped. It just ended because, I don't know, the doctors just felt that uh, they weren't being appreciated. They had donated their time and... The systems had changed, and now everybody had insurance who was over 65, and they didn't have to donate their time anymore. It, it was, you know, it was sort of sad to see, but that's what happened. So you agree it's a broken system? Oh, without a doubt, it's a broken yeah. system. I think, I think the system uh, problems were uh, exacerbated by the uh, Affordable Care Act, and its implementation and the high deductibles that everybody was uh, forced to accept. And, and, and it was a burden on physicians because when patients come in with high deductibles and you're doing a procedure uh, for uh, whatever it is, you know, it's, they're, they're not going to be covered by their insurance. And, and now you're in the collection business. It's, uh, it, it's not well thought, it was not well thought out how it was implemented. And I think that's just exacerbated more problems in the system. And I think that also inspires each of us listeners hear this now to take control of your health, to take control of those choices that are right there for you to make on a daily basis. So let, let's talk about food. We've got Thanksgiving in our country next week. We have a lot of listeners that aren't in America, but for those of us here in the USA, this is the time of year where I've heard statistically most human beings gain between 10 and 12 pounds from next week to New Year's Day. 
Um, and I think as you get older, of course, that would probably be a higher number because your metabolic rate is slowed down. So you mentioned uh, something. I, I think it's, it's um, <laughs> if you follow healthy eating virtually all the time, then, you know, a birthday, a celebration, a family holiday um, is is not going to uh, ruin you. The problem is there's a, there are daily temptations of high carbohydrate offerings that uh, once you get started with them, they're, you know, they're pretty addictive. And um, if you start with the sweets and, and uh, pastries and you're going to want more and want more and want more, it's, it's tough to stop once you get started. Tell us why because it is that we crave. You know, what, what is that craving? Go back to the craving you just spoke about. Why does the body and brain crave what it is that we eat? You know, you know the uh, intense sweetness of sugar was not available to the uh, humans until, I don't know, just a few thousand years ago. And it didn't become really popular until the last... 300 years, 200 years. I mean, it was a delicacy for royalty in, in, in Europe. So, so it's a, uh, you know, we are worried. I don't think many of us are genetically prepared to handle a diet that's high in, in sugar. And the other, the other thing is the organized medicine uh, over the last 20 years kept telling us that diets that were low in fat were healthy, and um, it was an incredible disservice because you know most uh, re- reputable people now recognize that uh, diets low in carbohydrates are healthy and high in fat. And in fact, diets high in fat are healthy, and that uh, we need fat. And uh, fat gives you satiety. Uh, fat helps with your own hormone production. It's a, you know it's an important fat is involved in your brain and nervous tissue. It's just an important component, and uh, restricting it did not lead to improved health outcomes. Actually, restricting fat meant increasing carbohydrates just to get the calories you need, and that led to worse health outcomes. So we were telling the American public uh, with the uh, food pyramids designed by the government to uh, reduce your fat intake and to uh, increase your uh, carbohydrate intake or refined carbo- unrefined carbohydrate intake. But still, it was opposite of what you should do for cardiovascular health. So, um, you know, the government never really issued a mea culpa, but it should have. And people oh. still go to the supermarket and, and search out low-fat foods and think they're being healthy. You know, they go buy low-fat yogurt that's filled with sugar and they think they're being healthy. But mm. that's what it is. Well, and I find when I eat good fat, I don't feel hungry for yeah, so much time. longer. Right. It takes time for your stomach to empty a meal that's got a lot of fat in it. So that'll give you, you know, satiety. Another thing that I have patients who, again, who want to want to lose weight and and have poor diet habits, and and sometimes I will train them through 
deprivation, actually, to feel what being hungry is. A lot of people don't really know what being hungry is because they eat when it's time to eat, they eat when they smell something good, they eat when they see something in the store that attracts them, they eat when the uh, when they sit down in the movie theater. That It's not a relationship to hunger, it's just a relationship to some time or social event or something that triggers it. And um, if you learn what hunger is like, and then you'll know when you've had enough when you're eating. And that's, uh, that's another concept that uh, some people have to relearn. That's a great takeaway tool. Can you tell us how you would go over that again, how you help a client who is not even aware of their relationship with eating and well, being you know, full? Wake up in the wake up in the morning and uh, don't, Drink, drink all the clear liquids you want, and don't eat anything, and and just think about how you're feeling. And at some point, you're going to realize that you really want to eat something. Okay, now you you know, do you really want to eat something, or you or, or is it you're craving something because it's there's another cue there? Just try and make that distinction. And when okay. you really want to eat something, eat, and then eat the right kind of stuff. Eat stuff that's high in fat and high in protein and low in carbohydrates. And when, when you don't feel that way anymore, you'll know Then that's the time to stop. Well, it, I also it, think... It's, it's not easy. It takes a little while, but it's, it's a powerful concept for people who have never experienced it. I'll say it's becoming mindful about how your body feels when you're eating. That's exactly correct. That's another way of putting it, but that's exactly correct. And that's, I, you know... I think the other thing is you have to have a mindful attitude when you go to the grocery store because one of the things that we don't really know until we learn it is that we're being seduced by packaging. You mentioned the low-fat yogurt buyer. You know, you go down an aisle in a grocery store and a lot of people don't know that you're being manipulated, you're being um, brainwashed to think a certain way based on packaging. So there needs to be... Well, if it comes in a box, don't buy it. That's That's an easy one. Yeah. Well, and that gets back to the whole idea of dead food. You know, I often say to people, don't eat where you buy your gas, you know. (laughs) So I think it's helpful for our listeners to go over what I mean when I say dead food. So first of all, there's fillers and, and fillers are really everything that we're taught to love, like bread and white rice and pasta and sugar and chips and soft drinks. Say potatoes, did you say? Yeah, I said potatoes. Yeah. So that would be a filler. And then the processed foods would be the frozen meals, the snacks, the desserts, and weird stuff like ketchup, which again... Oh, ketchup back for sugar. That's just, an, yeah. that's just another word for sugar. Yeah. So I, I want to get back to that in a second because sugar's hidden in all these very uh, mysterious ways. Then there's the right. fast food that you mentioned. The fast food is the French fries, the cheeseburgers, the milkshakes, the griddle cakes, and anything else that's fried. So a lot of people, and I bet you find this in your practice, they are living off of dead food. They are living off oh, of... Oh, I, I had a classic yesterday. I, I asking a guy about his diet, a gentleman about his diet. Um, you know, into working out, very into his health, and uh, his uh, LDLs were elevated, his uh, bad cholesterol was elevated, and so I went through his diet, so I said, what do you eat for breakfast? He says, very healthy, I have a hard-boiled egg, 
And then I have three protein bars. Oh. I said, um, okay, what's the brand name of the protein bars? And he gave me the brand name. I wasn't familiar with it. And I looked it up online. And there were 22 grams of carbohydrate or sugar in each bar. And at four grams per teaspoon, you know, he was having eight teaspoons of sugar in each of three bars. In other words, 24 teaspoons of sugar were his equivalent, were his, was his breakfast. And wow. with the hard-boiled egg, he only ate the white because he thought the yolk was bad because it was high in fat. And he fed that to his dog, who looked very healthy. Oh, my God. So, so, so that people just don't understand, get confused, think they're doing the right thing, making the effort but it's counterproductive. And they've been manipulated. So the re-education is right now. So talk to me about, I want to get back to the egg yolk, but let's stay with the sugar for a moment (laughs) because that ketchup, you know, like many people don't realize that sugar is not always called sugar. Sometimes it's corn syrup. What are the other names for sugar that we don't know? All the uh, various uh, fructose, dextrose, uh, dextran, um, it, you know, they're they're they cane syrup, uh, all organic, natural cane syrup. That's a good one. Uh, mm. Concentrated fruit juice, concentrated pineapple juice, pear juice, all that stuff. That's nothing but fructose, basically. So these are all sugars, and 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 um, obviously in soft drinks and and sweet mixed drinks. And if you go to Starbucks and order you know, a couple of shots of this and a couple of shots of that, you're putting, you know, gobs of, of, of sugar and uh, unrefined carbohydrates into your diet. So there's if lots you, of ways to do too much sugar. And if you don't know where sugar is hidden, is there a takeaway percentage on a daily basis that we should strive for just overall no more than X percent of sugar per day based on labels? I think what you need to do is eliminate all obvious sources of sugar. Um, stuff's going to get in there anyway, and um, not eating stuff with sugar in it um, has its own benefit in that after a couple of weeks, it doesn't taste as good as you remember. Mm. Yeah, I hear a lot of people say that who finally give up the diet soda and they always will say that it's the hardest thing to do if you've had it all your life and you've thought that because it's dietetic soda, it's actually fine when in fact it is not. So no, they come back to no, me. There are lots of studies showing problems with uh, ingestion of diet sodas. Oh, yeah. I put that in my book in 2001, and now it's being proven. So I'm grateful for that. But the other thing that I notice with this whole sugar movement is the rise in type 2 diabetes. I mean, that seems Absolutely. so correlated. And, and, and type 2 diabetes, obesity, and uh, diabetes, and obesity in kids. Kids are, you know, the TV, the TV shows them the snacks, and the schools serve them the snacks because they don't eat the good food, and it's just, it's, it's an issue, you know, and, and the, the truth of the matter is kids who have a high metabolic rate and very high hormone levels um, can get away with this uh, a lot more than adults can. They're active, their metabolic rates are high, their hormone levels are high. They can metabolize the 
toxic effects of sugar away for the most part. Some of them who have good genes, others not so well blessed will just blow up uh, and uh, show all the manifestations of obesity and early uh, insulin resistance. So um, there, there is genetic diversity in how we handle this stuff. But, um, you know, you, everybody knows somebody who eats lousy but still isn't fat. I mean, they had, they've got some genetic thing going for them. So. Back to the genetics. But also I think this younger culture, because of the technological obsessive nature and addiction, not only are they eating fast food on the go because everybody's overwhelmed and doing multitasking, but they're also not moving. And so it's a lethal combo. And I'm I'm assuming that type 2 diabetes will only continue to rise until we change the language of how we view aging, health, and choices. Yeah, well, you know, the the degree with which you can control your destiny by exercising and eating well uh, and uh, to get the greatest benefit, I would suggest uh, restoring your hormones, the differences in uh, how you are going to age are dramatic. And I used to give a lecture and um, I show the, a graph uh, where the quality of life is plotted over time. And it shows, obviously, the highest quality of life as you get into your 20s and early 30s. And then the quality of life starts to slip as you approach 50. And it slips a little more as you approach 60. And it slips a little maybe even more as you approach 70. And then as you get to 80, the drop becomes dramatic and then just sort of falls off the chart after that. And what... Restoring your hormones and exercise and eating correctly can do is keep that line more horizontal so the quality of life stays much higher for much longer and you don't go through that slow decline. That's why I give you that visual of uh, the uh, walker and the oxygen tank with the nasal cannula Mm. and the wheelchair and, gee, that sounds like the auto train down to Florida, which I just got off of. Wow, uh, that was an experience. However, uh, um, I want to keep that quality of life line horizontal, and that's what I strive to do for my patients. At some point, it's going to fall down because, you know, that's just the nature of the being. But you want to maximize the quality of life as you get older. That's what age management does. Well, and I have a goal to make my third act, assuming I get to live to the third act, in my best decade. I mean, I think what's so cool right now with people that are taking their health into their own hands is you hear people in their 70s who will say, this is the best decade I'm having in my life ever. And we used to hear that often with people in their 50s, and now it's actually the 70s. So that's progressive. Well, and I'm not there yet, but I, but I can tell you that I don't feel any less energetic or capable than I did when I was in my 20s or 30s. Uh, even, even what I can do in the gym or, or, or anywhere. Um, and I also had, I had some issues with cognitive 
ability. Uh, when I, before I got involved with the program, I had a father who had Alzheimer's disease really bad from age 83 to 95, and I dealt with that. So when I started having some, what was the name of that? No, oh, I can't remember that name. What was? I sort of freaked out thinking that, okay, this is it. I'm starting. And after I got involved in the uh, program and restored my hormones, that, that all disappeared. And, uh, and I'm grateful. So, you know, I think there's a lot of things you can do to maximize your uh, quality of life as you get older. Oh, and that, and when you're speaking about the brain, that's why I love dance choreography. And I've read that it is one of the most powerful ways to keep that brain healthy. You're actually moving and remembering foot patterns and arm patterns at the same time. So it's a great oh, way it's like, to. It's like, it's, like, it's like those old Chinese couples in the park doing their Tai Chi <laughs> or whatever yes. they're doing. You know, they're going through these these motions and movements, and they look great. (laughs) I love it. Now, I want to get to the limbic brain because one of the things that I've often studied is that the happiness cure for aging is to fire up your limbic brain. Um, And I want to get your thoughts about that. And I also want to take that to the notion of um, sleep, sun, and sex. So, but, But let's just talk a moment about the limbic brain, if you could give some thought to that. It's what runs our emotions. Well, uh, I, I, all, all, my only thoughts are this. Um, we know I, that um, hormones affect the brain, not only on a cellular level, on a synaptic level, but um, they affect somewhat who you are and how you feel about yourself. And how do I become aware of this? It was only through my own experience as a patient who underwent hormonal restoration. And I know what I was feeling like before and how I was reacting with the world. And I had sort of lost interest in my business and I had sort of lost interest in my marriage and I was losing interest in golf. Now I knew something had to be wrong. So, you know, (laughs) that sort of pushed me to do something. So it's a, um, and after I went through the transformation, I realized that who I was and who I thought I was and how I interacted with the world and how my what my desires were and how interested I was, it just underwent such a radical transformation that I sort of came up with the expression is that you are who your hormones tell you you are. And um, it was it was a it was dramatic only in retrospect. <laughs> hmm. And, and again, just to give the listeners another angle with that, a non-hormonal angle to that would be to stay emotionally connected to... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's the, uh, you know, human connections have some sort of uh, say in how we, how we are as people. And uh, sure, absolutely. Because positive um, emotions by creating positive environments and connecting with others drives away that stress and loneliness and makes you feel a part of something larger than yourself. And I think that's very important as we're aging 
and using our computers more and more, it is imperative that you also have that human contact and feel that emotional connection to other. I, I think it's important. I think I think people are going to try and synthesize that. <laughs> Say what you mean. What do you mean? I, I, th- I think I think they're going to try and develop some sort of you know robotic thing to for you to cuddle with that you could have an emotional attachment to. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen here in Portland, Oregon, we have cuddle therapy where you can actually. Let's not get political. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but let's do talk, let's let's do talk about sex. I I want to know. Okay. I would like to know what is is it important to stay sexually active as we get older? Uh, listen, I think it's important to stay sexually active for your mental health and for your physical health. I think it benefits both. Uh, I think that it's unfortunate that. Um, as we get older, those things sometimes become more difficult to perform from a physical point of view, not so much an emotional point of view, but uh, the body undergoes changes. And as uh, hormone levels drop in men, their interest uh, wanes, their ability to perform wanes, and then it becomes uh, very easy to, uh, well, she's not interested, I'm not interested, we'll just, you know, call the whole thing off. So that, that becomes a pattern in a lot of relationships as people get older, and it's, uh, it, takes, um, it takes some sort of effort, uh, sometimes by both partners, sometimes by one partner or the other, to maintain the physical ability to uh, have an intimate relationship. Uh, That's, by the way, where I think hormones play a very, very important role because as uh, women uh, go through their changes and um, their responses uh, aren't what they are and the tissues become drier and more atrophied and urinary problems develop because of it and um, you know, it just sort of makes the, uh, the concept less attractive. And if you restore the hormones, then your body responds like you did when you were 25 years old. There's no issues in, in performance or in, uh, in, and, and if you restore the correct hormones correctly, you can restore libido, uh, and, 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 and restore interest. And um, and the excitement of it, and I think that's you know uh, I think that's important. Uh, and if you can do it um, internally, not have to do something at the time, uh, that's these are all things that make make it easier for everybody to uh, keep enjoying it. What about just masturbation? So, like, what what about not having to have another person it, it, the to old, stay? The old, the old, it doesn't give you the uh, human-human interaction that we were just talking about before to maintain the best uh, level. But, you know, um, there are recent studies, at least for men, that show um, prostate cancer inversely related to uh, ejaculation frequency. So... um, you know, it's sort of a tongue-in-cheek laughing thing, but it's actually real. 
Oh, and, and I think um, it's true for women too. So, I think I think an orgasm for anyone is a great way to continue to keep your body actively awake, sexually attuned. And I have a wonderful client of mine who calls herself I-sexual because she hasn't had a lot of luck meeting a partner, but she is committed to staying active in her own sexual choices with her masturbation. And I think there's a lot of value in that as you get older. That shouldn't be put oh, aside. I, 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 listen, it's um, it's certainly preferable to um, no uh, orgasms, but um, you shouldn't stop seeking out relationships because you find that you're so Older. satisfied by yourself. I would say. I would <laughs> yeah. say that that's the only that's the downside that I would say. You know, you're sort of like you know you do. Sort of like a video game instead of the real thing, you know. Okay, okay. So, so uh, we'll, we have a show coming up called about narcissism, and I was thinking that's the ultimate narcissist who just <laughs> is so in love with their reflection and their masturbation that they don't need another person. Um, but or, yes, or, or nobody else would be good enough. Exactly, exactly. Now, you just said something I'm dying to touch on, which was the when you were talking about the hormonal change in women and sexuality, it was um, the change. You said something like the change that women go through. And I am a big believer. As women approach their 40s, you know, into early 50s, the ovaries, which every month would pop an egg out and form a corpus luteum would make progesterone for you and you would have your period and you would have your hormones would go up and down and, and, but after a while, those ovaries run out of follicles or eggs to produce. And this month, no follicle is produced that month. No follicle is produced. Meanwhile, you still have estrogen in your body. And you go through a period of what's called estrogen dominance. That's when you get heavy periods, your breasts get sore, your periods are irregular, uh, you start maybe not to feel so good, maybe you're not sleeping right. This is the estrogen dominance phase of menopause. You may start to get flashes, you know, hot flashes. And then eventually your ovaries stop working, you produce no progesterone, and then the estrogen levels drop, and now you've got virtually no hormones. In addition, women need testosterone. You know, it's the male hormone, but a little bit is necessary in women for their bone density, their muscle mass, their cognitive function, and uh, it also is important for their libido. So they lose that also. Now, if you restore those and you restore the women's testosterone level to the right level and their estradiol to the right level and their progesterone to the right level, and obviously we also check thyroid and we're a little more aggressive with thyroid than most physicians because we have an ideal level that we aim for. And if you restore all those, then the internal organs function the same as when you were 25 or 30. You uh, can uh, lubricate like you used to. You can fantasize like you used to, and um, it and your and and you know it affects your brain like I like I spoke to before. So um, it's a it's an alternative way of achieving what you have to do with you know 
individual uh, internally applied or externally applied uh, um, uh, helpers to uh, make it functional for you. Yeah, but I think it's ironic that it's called menopause because I think men go through menopause just as profoundly as women do. I mean, we they can talk do, about... But it's much more gradual. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's something that is not talked about nearly well, enough. Well, men, men lose between 1% and 3% of their testosterone each year after 25 so um, if you are a small loser and only lose 1%, um, you'll be in pretty good shape when you're 50. If you're someone who loses 3%, uh, you'll be in bad shape when you're 50. Let's take someone who loses 2%, okay, just as an example. Um, you start out with a testosterone level of 25 of 1,000. And you lose 2% a year for 25 years. Now you're 50 years old. You've lost 50% of your testosterone, and your level is now 500. And you go to the doctor. Mm, I don't feel as well as I used to. I can't work out in the gym as well as I used to, whatever. And doctor, please check my testosterone. So the doctor says, okay, I'm going to check your testosterone. And he sends you to the lab, and the testosterone level comes back at 500 where we expected it. And the doctor looks at you, and he says, Mr. Smith, your testosterone level is perfectly in the mid-range of men your age. Your testosterone level is normal. Now, if Mr. Smith came to me, I would say, yes, your testosterone level is perfectly normal for men your age. But if you want to feel good, I'm going to make it what it was when you were 25 years old. And I do, and he does, and that's and and, and that's you can say and between what I do and what a normal physician who would have been me five years ago would do. And with that, what I'm going to let the listeners know, if they want to learn more about what Lowell offers in his work, the website is barrackmed.com, which is B-A-R-E-K-M-E-D.com. I want to thank you, Dr. Lowell Barrack, and I do want to leave the show with a couple of takeaway tools just to reiterate what we've spoken about today, which has been very helpful and interesting. And I think the main thing that we tapped on, everyone can do this right now, today, certainly before the holiday begins in this country. Work out, move, get outside, go into a gym, get into a dance studio, do an active video, but you have to move your body. And I'm even going to suggest that you move your body at least six times per week. You got to stop eating garbage. Don't eat dead food. You care about something greater than yourself and you feel more important. You want to stay sexually active. Start masturbating if you're not masturbating, and hopefully you can then share that love with someone else. And men do go through menopause just as much as women do. Dr. Barrick, thank you. I appreciate your time. My pleasure, Laura. And as we end each show, we say to the listeners, you complete you, don't look elsewhere, go inside, do the work, take the tools, live a better life. Thank you for tuning in. This is Feel Good Naked Radio. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. 
Please join us again live next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin.